we all had to work twice as hard plus smart just to prove that we were equally as good on the job. I still remember being asked questions like, are you sure you're fit for the job? No, there's no space on the rig. It goes without saying that I got denied certain opportunities for learning and growth just because of my gender. On a local level, I'd like to see my town, Grimsby, renovated by the the wind industry. There's a lot of money coming into the town from the supply chain effect of these uh, huge wind farms. In 20, 30 years, if I can see my birth town completely changed, I'd be so happy. Hi, I'm Dean Somerville, your host for Energy in Conversation, the podcast that takes a look into our energy future through the eyes of people leading the way. Last season, we explored some of the rapidly changing areas of our energy system. And we're continuing that this year, but with a different spin. This season, we've invited young energy professionals to take over the podcast as part of the Energy Institute's Generation 2050 initiative. Not only are they already shaping their areas of energy around the world, but our guests will be the industry's leaders in 2050, when the world will look very different from today. Each episode features a senior member of the Energy Institute, joined by two folks fresh on the scene, discussing the biggest questions for energy and society, from climate change to energy access, and of course their own experiences working in the sector. This week, our chief exec, Louise Kingham, explores the values that are influencing the career choices of young professionals. Our guests consider what it means to have a career with a conscience in an industry often criticized for shirking its responsibilities to the planet. Why did they join the industry? What challenges have they faced? And what role do they see themselves playing in some of the most important challenges for our generation? This episode is split into two parts, with a brief intermission to hear the perspectives of some even younger voices. So without further ado, enjoy the conversation. Hello everybody, my name is Louise Kingham and I'm Chief Executive of the Energy Institute and delighted to have two guests with me, David and Mervyn. So Mervyn, let's start with you. Please introduce yourself. I'm Mervyn Azeta, a Product and Service Delivery Manager for two business lines, within the production systems division at Slumberger. So I'm based in Port Harcourt, Nigeria. And David, uh, welcome. Thank you. My name's David. I'm an offshore wind turbine technician. I operate on various wind farms around the North Sea, and I'm based in Grimsby, northeast Lincolnshire. I started out as an apprentice, and now I'm a fully qualified technician. David, so what made you want to work in energy and choose that that career? Well, engineering-wise, that was something I knew I was going to go into. I was always hands-on. I always enjoyed fixing stuff. Whether it was renewables or not, that that came along after I worked at a single-use plastic company in Hull. Um, I worked there for about three years, and that's when I really realised I didn't want to be part of this manufacturing process. So I saw an advert in the local newspaper about this offshore wind turbine company, Orsted, hiring some apprentices for the the first time they've ever done this. I put my name down, I applied, and I, that was me, and this is this is where I am today. It was actually um, Dong Energy, which stood for Danish Oil Natural Gas. It's made a complete transformation recently. It changed its name to Orsted, and it's got rid of all of the oil and gas sector of the company. When the company comes along and says they're, they're going to do something like run the world entirely on green energy, yeah, that, that, that's something I want to be a part of. I want to be a cog in that system. Mervyn, how about you? What were your motivations for for making the choices that you have? So growing up, I always wanted to solve problems, just like David, fixing things was a thing for me. And um, these were problems ranging from personal health challenges to societal concerns, which essentially made me ask loads of questions. I was very curious as a kid. 
Then at age eight, I suffered a grave loss, the death of my wonderful aunt during childbirth, owing to power outage. Like every person and institution in Nigeria, the hospital was used to having power cuts and obviously made provision for a backup generator. Unfortunately, the generator failed and my aunt became a victim of circumstance, so she died. This particular event stimulated my curiosity about the Nigerian oil and gas sector, which at the time was responsible for providing the power in our homes. And then the wider energy industry, because I realized with time as well that the energy access challenge wasn't peculiar to Nigeria. And that made me interested in the energy industry as a whole, and then eventually a passion to address these global challenges. As, as much as my role is business oriented, I think it's also very technical. So I've had to do a lot of the technical bit in understanding how energy is generated from the oil and gas sector, as well as the renewable side of things. And I'm also very interested in addressing other global challenges like climate change, STEM education and gender equality. So, and Mervyn, amazing motivations, clearly, and, um, you know, and out of personal tragedy, too, which is really hard. David, let's turn to you. How about you in terms of sort of motivations? And, and you've described a little bit, but did you come up against any challenges? I mean, how easy was it to, to, to get to where you've got to now? So when I got the position at Orsted, um, I was one of four apprentices that they took on um, in that intake. And I believe, I don't know the figure exactly, but it was somewhere like 800 or maybe a thousand applicants went for them positions. And we was up against really, really well-educated young people who who were just as passionate as me. So I was so fortunate to get to where I am now and to get accepted. Now this apprentice pool is up to 30 apprentices in just three years. So you can see how much it's grown over the years they're taking on more and more young people so it's good to know that there's more opportunities being given to these young people. Were either of you conscious of um, any sort of inequality of opportunity or a a lack of diversity in the organisations that you have had experience with? Mervyn what about you and and, and particularly given the kind of the cultural differences which which obviously through having the office and members in in Nigeria I'm familiar with tell me from your perspective uh, about sort of overcoming those challenges if you saw any. It's a whole different game when you're talking about Nigeria and the UK in terms of culture, right? And so I faced those um, stereotypical judgments from getting into the university and working my way through university and eventually coming into the industry. So it's always been there. Um, there's been, you know, microaggressions. It's just that I didn't know it was microaggressions at the time. I just thought it was, you know, something that happened. But I had people tell me, you're probably going to fall out of engineering in your third year or fourth year or something because engineering is for boys um, and not so many girls make it to the end, you know. And I remember one conversation I had with a friend of mine. She had visited our home and she was telling me this, this um, stuff. And my dad was eavesdropping in our conversation. As soon as she left, my dad came and said, you never take in those negative stuff. Make sure you tell her straight back whenever she tells you such things that you're going to make it through. I've literally just kept that mindset. And I always see challenges as opportunity for learning and growing. So it helps me, you know, wade through them um, as I go along. Yeah. Uh, I, I completely agree. That personal drive is, is is so important, isn't it? It's something that I'm very passionate about and I spend quite a lot of my time 
particularly supporting um, the rebalance of sort of gender in the top of organisations because the energy sector's not got great track record there, making good progress, but still quite a long way to go. And I have to say, I just thought this is work. And so I accepted it all at the time when I was sort of 22 and starting work uh, and I'm much older now. Uh, and I, But it, I was still, it's still uh, quite a bit older before I even realised that there was there was an issue here and we, we could actually do this better. Do, do you see that or did you see any of that as you were coming into the sector? It was happening to me and to as many young women that we had um, joining the industry. And, and we all had to work twice as hard plus smart just to prove that we were equally as good on the job like the men. I still remember being asked questions like, are you sure you're fit for the job? Or are you sure you can do the job? Or when I'm out in the field on a deep water facility, you know, I get asked, what are you doing here? You should be modeling because clearly someone thought I was, you know, skinny and pretty and a female and I should be doing something that was more feminine rather than doing men's stuff. And there were some rigs I couldn't go on as well because um, they were either designed in such a way that women could not be accommodated. For example, they had common bathrooms where all the men would just go in and have a bath, but I couldn't go there. Or the POB, like personnel on board or capacity, wouldn't allow the office to free up an entire room just to accommodate me. So they would tell me, you know, there's no space on the rig and they can't give me a room to keep me with a man in the room. But interestingly, I'd been on a few rigs where I was um, with him. I was with men in the room, like I literally shared rooms with men. It's just that when it's time to do my own stuff, they would probably step out of the room just to allow me to do that. So it goes without saying that I got denied certain opportunities for learning and growth just because of my gender. But there's been some progress now, it's changing. It's just that there's still a lot more to be done. And I hope that um, with some of us who are working really hard, like you and I, and, and, and as many women who are passionate about diversity and just helping women, you know, supporting them in their careers and helping women see that you can actually thrive in a male-dominated sector, irrespective of your gender or race or, you know, ethnicity, um, we would have a lot more women in the in the organizations and in the industry as well. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. And, and and while some people will probably be quite taken aback by your stories, Mervyn, I, I, they're, they're certainly um, not news to me. And I've, I can I can recall colleagues of mine who would say to me that, you know, working offshore 25 years ago, that was what you found. And actually, just as you, you couldn't go offshore because the facilities simply weren't there as a woman. And as you say, you know, it was too awkward or too difficult or troublesome to, to change things and in order to accommodate that. But I think the last time I went offshore, there were more Angolan women on the platform than there were men. So we, we are making progress. Wow. But as you yeah. say, there's a, there's, <laughs> there is a long way to go. Um, David, do you see that? Or did you see any of that as you were coming into the sector? When I started at Orsted, there wasn't there wasn't many women. I think maybe maybe one or two. Uh, not so much in the office, but offshore as a technician side. I was asked to do women in engineering event. I went to Hull and I stood at my company's table with a room full of girls who want to um, get into the industry. And it was a bit wrong, really, because it should have been a woman stood there, not me. But there just wasn't any. Whereas now. I don't know off the top of my head, there's maybe seven apprentices out of the 30 that are ladies. So it's not it's not balanced yet, but it's well on the way to be balanced. And I know recently our newest wind farm, which is under construction, Hornsey 2, there's 19 gents and there's four ladies. So it's still not right, but 
when you look at the the industry as a whole, 19 and four, it's getting there. Yeah, and it's a long game, isn't it? I mean, you know, it, this is these are not short term fixes. There, there's things that you can do to stimulate change, but actually, you've got to be consistent over a long period of time. And there, there are key things that that are are really, really helpful. One is that personal commitment from leadership, and as you mentioned, and and David did too, that ability to step up and be a role model, so that when people look in or look up, they see somebody like them, and they say, do you know what, I could do that too. So there's an element of what you are both doing, which is trailblazing and making space for others to follow behind you. And maybe the path won't be quite so bumpy or there won't be so many obstacles in the way, which is a, a huge contribution, actually, to to the effort to, to make some sustainable, some long term change. Leadership is really important. I work with 14 other CEOs on on this and we meet every couple of months to see what progress they're making in their own organisations as well as how we can influence the energy sector more broadly. So what would you both ask of your CEOs on 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 this score if if you had some bumpy experiences uh, and you and you can see that there's still a job to be done. Mervin, what would what would you say to your CEO? I mean, so it's like you said, being committed, right? And making sure that in his own team, he has a good representation of diversity and, and you know, um, race. So if I look at my uh, board today, I want to see a lot more women. That way you're telling me that you're really committed to gender equality and, you know, di- diversity and inclusion. Um, and, and let that also trickle down the organization. So at every level of the organization, there is, a good representation of women in those places. Um, if you do that, yeah, then you tell me that you're really committed to that. You, it's, it's, it's really about walking the talk, right? I agree. And, and De- David, how about you? What would you be looking for from your CEO to, to, to accelerate the, the progress that you're already starting to see? So I, I think they got a, a woman in the industry who's a technician, she does a job great. She's, she's the perfect role model get her speak to to people outside of the industry get them get her into schools colleges because people listen to people like themselves you will connect a lot better yeah i think that's a really good point it's like those personal connections that essentially if you maximize those you almost create a movement don't you that you just can't put in reverse generation 2050 is not just about hearing the voices of young professionals but all future leaders in energy the big bang competition part of the uk's Big Bang Young Scientists and Engineers Fair recognizes the achievements of young people between 11 and 19 in all STEM subjects. As part of the competition, the Energy Institute's Climate Change Award gives a chance to showcase their great ideas for reducing greenhouse gas emissions. Today we're taking a short break to hear from the winners of last year's award, the inventors of the Blue Pipe Drain Pipe Generator, about their views on the future of energy and their hopes for their own careers. Today I am joined by Four very clever people, Harry, Eden, Harvey and Jane from Walton High School, this year's Big Bang winners of our Climate Change Award that was sponsored by the Energy Institute. So, so James, tell me, where, where did the idea for the invention for Blue Pipe come from? How did it start? Harry actually came up with the idea that we could harness power of rainwater to generate electricity. And so, so Harry, what next? You had the brainwave. What process did you go through to, to actually create your invention? We used a small recycled DC motor with a gear system and an aluminium axle and then 3D printed the system that, where the water goes into the uh, water wheel that then turns the gears and turns the motor at an increased rate. 
Um, and then we did some testing um, using uh, the volt meters um, to see how much power we could produce. And we managed to light up a couple of small lights with it. And then we decided we could expand. So we created blue valve as well um, as a secondary part, which is uh, a small system that controls the flow of the water. Fantastic. And, and presumably during the testing, you know, like with most inventions and new creations, you have hiccups and problems. What, what sort of things did you come up against? So we uh, had to try and remove, because when we printed it, we had to use some support material. Um, we had to try and remove that, which was a bit of a pain. I think we had to use a soldering iron yeah, to try and get that out, to melt the plastic away. Um, and thankfully, none of the parts have actually corroded because uh, most of them are made of like stainless steel, I think, uh, the nuts and bolts. Uh, but there is a small bit of rust on some of the uh, gear on the inside. So uh, that's one of the problems we do have when working with water. Yeah, I guess so. And, and from the Energy Institute, we do lots of work on corrosion. So I've got every sympathy with you. It's not an easy thing to overcome, is it? Not at all. So how do you see blue pipe being used? I think, um, well, you can trickle charge appliances off of it. And although, it's it's only a small appliance, but if you think about any sort of water, like gravitational potential, and you've got moving water, can power it. So it can be applied in so many different areas. It doesn't just have to be in, say, like gutters in houses and things. It's getting critical that we take strain off of the kind of huge demand that we have for energy. So what next for for blue pipe? I think we need to find a way to make it um, more mass producible and a way of being able to fit it to lots of different places. And um, if the easiest way to do that would probably be with new builds. You could just um, integrate it as part of the drain pipe. It would probably be harder to actually refit existing drain pipes with it. So do you think, is it your opinion, that we can achieve access to uh, clean energy universally by 2030? I think what's important is targeting the areas where we really do lack the infrastructure just to give everybody a chance to have access to it, like sub-Saharan Africa, India, where I think in some areas one in three people are without access to energy. So what would be, uh, James, what would be the one thing that you would like to see um, happen next in the energy world to make advances towards what our net zero ambitions in 2050? Well, if you're, like Ethan said, if you're going to be going for clean energy, I think it's going to be a combination of lots of different factors to be able to achieve that, because none are going to be as reliable as efficient, say, fossil fuels. So, for example, if you have wind turbines relying on the wind, this relies on the rain, solar panels rely on the sun. But if you then combine all of them together, they should be able to meet the demand while also being able to remain clean completely. So Harvey, do you think we can uh, peg these uh, global temperature rises to under, under, well under two degrees? I think if we really want to, by the end of the century, we'll need to have immediate action really, and quite considerable action as well. So Harry, in your in your sort of future career, what what would you like to achieve? What what would you like? Would you like to continue to contribute to this this issue? Uh, absolutely. I'd um, love to get hopefully an apprenticeship um, for some sort of STEM-related career. And I think energy really is a fantastic field to go into because it is such a problematic thing at the moment. We need to create a clean supply and I would love to be able to contribute to that in my future career. 
Thanks and congratulations again to Harry, Eden, James, and Harvey. And now, part two of our discussion. If we turn to think about the energy industry and the sort of the the bigger challenges that we have globally around access to energy and, and tackling climate change, sometimes you'll get people that just would like to see us turn the taps off on oil and gas tomorrow. Uh, and clearly, you know, David's experience, Dong became Orsted and, and made a big decision to, to get out of that business. How do you see the role that the oil and gas industry needs to play? Mervyn, what does that question mean for you? So I'll take it in maybe um, three steps. The first one is that there's still a lot of people in the world today who do not have access to energy, and we need to provide that access to them. And we need to leverage the resources that we have in those places to provide access. So if you look at Africa, we still have a lot of people without access, not even just, you know, having the lights on for a few hours a day. Some people don't have any connection whatsoever to the grid. We can get them electricity with renewables, but there's a lot more that we can do to develop the economy beyond just providing light bulbs. We know that we need to transition to a cleaner future. We're taking steps to move away from just relying on oil and going to gas. So we will still be using gas and and adding some of the renewables. Then coming to the second bit, the oil and gas has the money to invest in renewables. Sambuja is developing technologies that minimize our environmental footprint during um, exploration and production. They're also investing in carbon capture and storage. Traditional oil and gas companies are accelerating their you know, investments in renewables. We hear of Total cutting down upstream production by 40% and looking to achieve 50 gigawatts in renewables. So these companies, oil and gas, they have the money, they have the experience as well to make progress on technologies like carbon capture and storage or geothermal energy. So this experience that we've had from drilling, from exploring, um, you know, deep water wells will be brought into this renewable space and used to, you know, accelerate progress in the energy transition. And then thirdly is the fact that, you know, there's still challenges with developing low carbon fuels today. We, We can't fly our planes just now on renewables. We can't, you know, move goods from UK to, to, to Africa, you know, with just reliance on renewables or clean fuels, as, as you would imagine. And our heavy industries don't have the low carbon solutions just now. So it would take a while to get to that point. We would still need to ship things. We will still need to fly. We will still need to, you know, supply uh, um, feedstocks to heavy industries. And these things will still be oil and gas or hydrocarbon-based. Yeah, no, it's a very, very full answer to that, Mervyn. Thank you. And I I, I take from that that you you see a role for oil and gas going out for for the next few decades at least. David, from from your perspective, what do do you see when you look out from the future, obviously coming from a very different different company? I find it really interesting, actually, listening to to Mavin's point of view, I, I, I was learning then. It's really interesting to hear it from her side of the of the pond. I'm a wind turbine technician, right? So what what I'm seeing from my perspective is that the the turbines they're getting bigger, they're getting better, they're getting smarter. They're producing more and more energy, electricity for us. Since I've worked there, I've seen these almost doubling capacity, tripling capacity, in fact, for the next. 10 20 30 years that's all i can imagine is that these are going to get bigger and bigger and bigger and the the cost of installing them is only going to get cheaper and cheaper and cheaper so for us european countries i can imagine we're going to be seeing these spring up you know more and more and it's going to give 
people like myself and um, my colleagues, well, a job for life, repairing and fixing them. And, and that's that's really that's really interesting, actually, because my follow up question in in listening to you both is as you see the sector evolving how do you think that impacts on the skills that you might need or want to develop as you build your career and and, and make your progression uh, through David do, do, do you have a view on that when the wind industry was at its infancy I was I was told that it was quite funny really because there was no wind turbine technicians around back then so there was there was hiring people like welders joiners um builders that sort of thing to to come and and transition into the wind industry and it's bizarre now looking backwards for for my generation now we're we've gone through uh an apprenticeship scheme with with time served wind turbine technicians so we can branch out now now we can go into the high voltage side of it we can go into the heavy lifting operations so um, basically the replacement of big components or we might go down the health and safety route uh, road access so repairing the the wind turbine blades um, non-destructive testings when we build a wind farm it's going to last for 20 years when the new turbines come along there's going to be there's going to be new pieces of equipment new technologies that then we've got to adapt ad- adapt to our skills basically to learn that so i, f- I think if you were to look back 20 years ago, it seems crazy to be able to specialise in in certain roles within the, the wind industry. There's a lot of people who aren't following in the engineering pathway because they think that being an engineer is a dirty job. It's, you know, you're going to come home stinking of grease. It's, it's, not a, it's not a clean, modern day job where you can work behind maybe a desk and earn exact same amount of money. Not the case anymore especially not in not in the the wind turbine um technician's life anyway it's not a dirty job it's a lot of it is computer based turbines are very modern so they require uh, there's a lot of software going on which needs um you know accessing and altering so i think it's important that we that we break the stereotype of working in this industry yeah, I, I completely agree. And I, and I think part of that is because the careers advice is not that great uh, in terms of the experience in, in the UK. Mervyn, when you think about your industry uh, in oil and gas and, you know, you've already touched on the, the transformation that needs to happen. Can you see different experiences and, and new skill sets that, that you'll need to develop as you make progress through your career? Yeah, so increasingly seeing that the traditional oil and gas companies are pivoting to the broader energy playing field um, and and divesting away from the original businesses that they had just to adjust to the energy transition. They're becoming integrated energy and data companies. They will need people to have digital skills and cross-cutting skills that that, uh, apply across different segments of the business. See that a lot of the skills that we have today, although they will be relevant, they will need employees like myself to upskill to be able to play in that space and we will be we will be interacting with a broader base of stakeholders right so we need to be able to engage all of the stakeholders and manage the relationships that we have with them i think it's a great time to be alive we're seeing a lot of innovation you know accelerated um, than we've than we've ever seen before and that is presenting a lot of opportunities for us to to learn to make a difference and particularly to make the world a better, healthier and safer place. 
Uh, I, I, I couldn't agree more. The CEO of BP, who's a fellow of the Energy Institute, he was talking to, to an event and he said the very same thing. He told a story about uh, a well site manager who uh, turned around and said, but I could be a solar site manager tomorrow. It's all good. There's plenty of opportunity for me to move from one part of the business to another part of the business as it broadens and as it diversifies. My chairman, the president of the Energy Institute, he's had a four decade career in the energy industry. And one of the speeches I heard him make, he said, boy, I wish I was 21 again. Starting out on a career in the energy industry right now would be amazing, given the opportunities and the scope that there is. So here's one for you, Mervyn. When you look back on your career in 30 years time, given that you're only nine years in, so you've got plenty to go yet, what would you have liked to have seen to the energy system? And, and what would you like to be remembered for as your contribution to that? So one, it will be, you know, inspiring a lot more women to thrive in the industry. And um, secondly, is to see that diversity and inclusion would no longer be a subject of discussion for gender mainstreaming in, you know, energy and infrastructure and, and just ensuring that a lot of the projects, policies and programs that we're developing for the industry considers the differing needs of women, youths and vulnerable populations. We would not have to talk about this in 30 years or 50 years time. Completely agree. Uh, the ambition should be that it's just not a conversation we need to have. Completely agree. And David, um, how, how about you? How's that question work for you? I'd like to see Orsted have um, a bigger apprentice programme. With that being the start of my career, I'd like to see hundreds of, of new apprentices joining. But on a local level, I'd like to see my town. So I'm from Grimsby, which um, since the, since the decline of the fishing industry really really suffered and it 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 went a lot of it got sort of abandoned um, and I'd like to see my town be renovated by the um, the wind industry because Grimsby is, is such a strong uh, logistical position with its uh, fish stocks um, already being in place that also they've decided to make that their base for their wind turbine operations on the east coast. And already they've made massive, massive changes to the town. There's, there's a lot of money coming into the town from the supply chain effect of these uh, huge wind farms operating out of the East Coast hub. So in 20, 30 years, if I can see my town, my, my birth town completely changed, I'd be you know, so happy. Yeah, that's a, that's an amazing thought, and and I and I guess um, for Mervin that that would apply to the country of Nigeria too. And I and I think David, there's right. a real opportunity, isn't there? Because um, you know, as the new energy estuary, particularly in that part of the UK, there's there's a huge opportunity for significant regeneration, actually. And I think the ambition to see apprenticeships as a just a normal route to getting a job, and as you said earlier in the conversation tackling the perception of engineering uh, and STEM careers or technically based careers is, is part of the solution to that, as well as the education system not being sniffy about one kind of qualification or experience over another. Uh, and I think we all have to take a responsibility as ambassadors, role models and leaders to, to, to help that one along. I'm slightly sad to close the conversation because I've really enjoyed it, uh, but we're almost out of time. So I would like to thank both of you for your time uh, today and for sharing some fantastic insights, thoughts and, and experiences. I've really enjoyed the opportunity to, to speak with you and, and, and uh, kick off this new series of Energy and Conversation podcast. Thank you both very much. Thanks again to today's guests, Mervyn Azeta, 
David Davidson, and Louise Kingham. If you want to read more about energy careers and each of our guests, visit our website, energy-inst.org podcast. From there, you can also discover more about our Generation 2050 initiative, including a series of free-to-attend COP26 roundtables starting in February. We'd also love to hear from you. Please get in touch by tweeting to at Energy Institute. And tune in to our next episode to hear about the next big thing for energy and heavy industry, carbon capture and storage. Energy in Conversation is brought to you by the Energy Institute. This episode was produced by Martin Begley and Daniel DeVeza. Music on this episode by Jack Keeney. I'm your host, Dean Somerville. Thanks for listening. If you could have an energy superpower, what would it be? And David, I'm going to start with you first. I knew you'd start with me. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I think it might might be to swing my arms really fast like a wind turbine and out the other arm comes electricity and I could just plug it into people's homes. And then we can forget forget all about the, (laughs) the wind turbines and oil and gas. So you'd be a one-man power generator. Wow. That'd be it, just going around to people's houses, topping up. <laughs> Brilliant. And Mervyn, what about you? It will be influencing policy formulation and implementation to make SDG happen in a year rather than in a year. Wow. Yeah, especially affordable, clean, reliable energy access for all Africans. Well, that's it. That is a laudable superpower and a fantastic ambition. And I and I think a great note to uh, to end the, the very positive conversation on.